Section 56 of the Catholic's Ready Answer. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Emerson Wells at FormulaFreak.com. The Catholic's Ready Answer by Rev. M. P. Hill. Section 56. Protestant View. The Popish sacrifice of the Mass, as they call it, is the most abominably injurious to Christ's one only sacrifice, the alone propitiation for all the sins of the elect. Westminster Confession of Faith, Calvinistic. Catholic Doctrine Christianity without a sacrifice would be an anomaly in the history of religion, for never before the advent of Protestantism was there a religion without a sacrifice. Without a sacrifice, the Christian religion would be strikingly defective, as it would lack the most perfect form of worship. A sacrifice is an act of divine worship which consists in the destroying, wholly or partially, of a sensible substance, and thus offering it to God in acknowledgment of His sovereign dominion over all things. Of all acts of homage, sacrifice is not only the most excellent, but the only one offered exclusively to God. All others, such as bowing, kneeling, or incensing may be offered to God's creatures, but sacrifice is offered to God alone, signifying, as it does by its very nature, the acknowledgment of God as the sovereign Lord of all things. The sacrifice of the Mass, so far from being injurious to the sacrifice of the cross, is really one in the same sacrifice as that of the cross. The victim is the same, the priest is the same, being no other than Christ Jesus himself, though as victim, he is offered ministerially by the hands of his creatures, and the sacrifice of the Mass, however, instead of a real shedding of blood, there is a mystical separation of the precious blood from the sacred body, and the Mass, instead of purchasing redemption for us, as did the sacrifice of the cross, rather applies to our souls the merits of the sacrifice of the cross. It is not Catholic teaching that once Christ died for us we were saved without any cooperation on our part, a free cooperation with the grace of redemption is indispensable. Now Catholics are taught that in this cooperation we are aided by the sacraments, and that in one of the sacraments our Lord has found a means of remaining in the midst of His creation, offering Himself as a perpetual victim and enabling us to cooperate with His redemption by our partaking of the victim from off the altar of sacrifice. Where then is the injury done to Christ's one only sacrifice? Is there any implication of its inefficacy in the fact that the sacrifice of the Mass applies its merits to the individual soul? A Calvinist should not censure such application if he holds to the declaration of the Westminster Confession that, although Christ died for the justification of the elect, nevertheless are they justified until the Holy Spirit doth in due time actually apply Christ unto them. The efficacy of the sacrifice of the altar does not exclude but rather includes the action of the Holy Ghost, and neither the one nor the other is injurious to Christ's one only sacrifice. Still less is it abominably injurious to it. But the best proof that the sacrifice of the Mass does no injury to the sacrifice of the cross is found in the fact that the sacrifice of the Mass is the fulfillment of prophecy, and that it was instituted as a sacrifice by our Divine Lord Himself. In the sacrifice of the Mass are verified the memorable words of the prophet Malachi, 
In the first chapter of his prophecy, he reproaches the Jewish priesthood for the manner in which they offer sacrifice and announces the abolition of their sacrifices and of their priesthood in favor of a sacrifice and priesthood which shall no longer be confined to the Jewish nation but shall be offered by the Gentiles and throughout the world. For, he says, from the rising of the sun even to the going down, my name is great among the Gentiles, and in every place there is sacrifice, and there is offered to my name a clean oblation. For my name is great among the Gentiles, saith the Lord of hosts. The prophet here predicts a sacrifice that shall be offered after the coming of the Messiahs. For he is evidently speaking of a time when God shall be known and his name be magnified by the Gentiles. But what sacrifice can be meant if not the sacrifice of the Mass? It is the only religious rite in messianic times that has ever been associated with the idea of sacrifice, and certainly today from the rising of the sun to the going down, i.e. from east to west, or in every place or throughout the world, is offered the sacrifice of the Mass. The Eucharistic sacrifice also fulfills the prediction of the royal prophet, Thou art a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. For a priest according to the order of Melchizedek would be expected to offer a sacrifice in some way resembling the sacrifice offered by Melchizedek. Now we are told in Genesis 14.18 that the sacrifice peculiar to that priest consisted in the oblation of bread and wine. Hence we should expect to find Christ offering a sacrifice which, at least in its outward aspect, would be the same. But where can we find any realization of this idea but in the institution of the Eucharistic sacrifice at the Last Supper? We may add that the idea of Christ's priesthood, according to the order of Melchizedek, was so often repeated and enlarged upon by the writers of the New Testament that the way in which the words of the royal prophet were verified could have been no secret to them. They must have associated the priesthood and sacrifice predicted by him with what they saw daily upon their altars. They must have seen in what was offered daily to God under the species of bread and wine an oblation which was the fulfillment of the typical sacrifice of Melchizedek. A study of the various narratives of the institution of the Eucharist as given by the sacred writers will show that a rite was inaugurated at the Last Supper which must have been of the nature of a sacrifice. The passages bearing on the institution are found in St. Luke 22, 19-20, St. Mark 14, 22-25, St. Matthew 26, 26-29, and St. Paul, 1 Corinthians 11, 23-25. The sacrificial character of the act is evidenced especially by the Greek text of St. Luke, particularly in the 20th verse, which may be translated as follows. In like manner, the chalice also after he had supped, saying, This is the chalice, the New Testament, in my blood, which chalice is being poured out for you. The chalice was being drained, or its contents were being poured out, at the very moment when those words were uttered. And consequently, the words must refer to the action. The significance of the action is shown in the words, which reveal its end or purpose. For you as in St. Luke, for many, as in St. Mark, and for many unto the remission of sins, as St. Matthew has it. Here then we find our Lord giving his apostles his precious blood and telling them that it was being poured out for them unto the remission of sins. This, moreover, he bade them do in remembrance of himself. It is not clear that he is instituting a sacrifice? 
we find all the requisites of a sacrifice in the pouring out of his lifeblood for the remission of sins, if such words as these were found in any part of Scripture which was not a battleground for controversialists, we venture to say they would have but one interpretation. This interpretation of St. Luke's text is borne out by the wording of the Greek texts of the other two evangelists. Protestants necessarily take a different view of the meaning of these passages. The words which we have translated literally, This is the chalice, the New Testament, in my blood, which chalice is being poured out for you, they interpret as meaning, This is the chalice, etc., which shall be poured out on the cross, an interpretation that will hardly bear any close scrutiny. For although chalice may be figuratively used for contents of a chalice, as we frequently use cup, glass, or bottle, for the wine or spirits contained in them, the figurative application of the word would be strained beyond reasonable limits by a reference to the shedding of blood on the cross, which could have no possible relation to a chalice. And besides the present tense used in the Greek texts of three evangelists, which we have rendered by is being poured out, cannot easily be given a future meaning, as it would naturally be referred by the apostles to the actual draining of the chalice which was taking place before their eyes. True, the words could have a secondary meaning or reference in harmony with the exclusive Protestant interpretation, whilst referring directly and primarily to the sacrifice that was being instituted they could have referred secondarily and indirectly to the shedding of the Lord's blood on the cross, which was on the eve of taking place. To this distinction being primary and secondary reference, no Catholic theologian can object. According to Catholic teaching, the two sacrifices are substantially identical, though the one is a mystical anticipation of the other. Add to the above arguments the following consideration, which to some minds may be more convincing, than any argument based on grammatical interpretation. Our divine Lord was establishing the new covenant which was to replace the old. This is the chalice, the new testament in my blood, St. Luke, or this is my blood of the new testament, Saints Matthew and Mark. He tells us, in other words, that his blood is contained in the chalice which he holds in his hands, by which is signified the new covenant he is making with his people. Herein there is an allusion to the words of Moses, who was the intermediary between God and the children of Israel, for the establishment of the Old Covenant. This, Moses said to the people, is the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you. Words to which St. Paul alludes in the Epistle to the Hebrews 9.20 The moment at which our Lord uttered these words at the supper table marked the change from the Old Covenant to the New. Moses, who was the type, is superseded by him, who is typified. The time of figures and of figurative ceremonies is past. The blood of calves and goats which Moses, after reading the law to the people, sprinkled upon the book of the law and upon the people and the tabernacle, and the blood of victims which was similarly sprinkled afterward in imitation of this initial rite, is now replaced by the blood of the Lamb of God. This is my blood of the New Testament. This do in commemoration of me. Is it possible that the great religious rite at this moment instituted, one that had to do with the precious blood of the Son of God, had no more significance than the empty types of an age of symbols and figures? Were not the religious rites of the Jews figures of the realities to come? 
Was the real blood of the Old Covenant to be followed only by a symbol of reality? Certainly not, is the Protestant answer. It was to be followed by the shedding of the real blood of the Son of God on the cross, and of the sacrifice on the cross. He was now only instituting a commemorative ceremony, which is our present celebration of the Eucharist. But if this be the case, why did he choose this moment when he was performing a rite to which the apostles would naturally think he referred, especially as the grammatical force of his words seemed to confirm them in that impression? This is my body which is being given for you, at this moment of course, or which is being broken for you, at this moment, and as bread might be broken. This is the chalice which is being poured out for you. And why does he so explicitly say, this is my body, this is my blood, and thus seem to indicate a mystical separation of the body and the blood, and consequently a mystical though real sacrifice? And then too at this solemn moment, when he repeats the words of Moses in their new sense, this is the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you. What a comparatively insignificant ceremony is supposed by our Protestant friends to have been instituted, one consisting in the eating of a piece of bread and the taking of a sip of wine, which ceremony is strangely supposed to remind one of the crucifixion. It is true that in the Catholic conception of the Eucharist the rite performed as a memorial of the Passion, as our Lord intended it should be, but in the Catholic rite, the act performed does of its nature symbolize the event of which it is a memorial. In the sacrifice of the Mass, a real change takes place. What a moment ago was bread and wine is now the body and blood of the Lord. And although he is present whole and entire under either species, and although no intrinsic change has taken place in the living and impassable humanity of the Savior, nevertheless, what is called a mystical separation of the body and blood takes place, inasmuch as by the words of the first part of the consecration, This is my body, only the body is present, and by virtue of the other words, This is my blood, only the blood is present. The act itself, therefore, by its very nature, recalls the actual separation of the precious blood from the sacred body of the Lord during the Passion. In the Anglican and Calvinistic ceremony, no change of any kind, physical or sacramental, occurs, and hence there is nothing but the intention of the communicant to make the partaking of bread and wine different from any ordinary repast. This surely is little in harmony with any other divine institution of a commemorative kind in which the ceremony instituted is a natural reminder of the thing commemorated and symbolized. Then, too, in the Catholic view of the Eucharistic rite, the perpetual offering of the real blood of the Lamb of God is an act of worship, which is a fitting and natural realization of the types embodied in the shedding of the blood of inferior victims under the old dispensation. The type should not be more real or in any sense greater than the thing typified. The sacrificial worship of the old law, which was a type of the worship of the new, should not be followed by a form of worship which is the inferior as such to its type. No mere memorial service can follow that which was the most perfect form of worship, namely sacrifice. Finally, the teaching of the fathers of the early church, whose united testimony on any question of Christian doctrine should be decisive, is so manifestly in agreement with the Catholic teaching that it is difficult to see how any impartial mind can fail to be convinced by it. 
The teaching of the fathers is so explicit, so clear, so varied in expression that no loophole is left for special pleading regarding the interpretation of their words. It is certain, says Grave, a learned evangelical divine of the 17th and 18th centuries, that Irenaeus and all whose writings we possess, the fathers who lived, some in the time of the apostles, others shortly after them, regard the Holy Eucharist as the sacrifice of the new law. Further on, he says, that this was not the private teaching and practice of any particular church or doctor, but those of the universal church, which that church received from the apostles, and which the apostles received from Christ himself, is taught expressly by Irenaeus, and before him by Justin Martyr, whose words as well as those by St. Ignatius, Cyprian, and others there is no need of transcribing. He does, however, transcribe one passage from Clement of Rome, a pupil of the Apostles, and adds in comment, And now, as the writer of this epistle seems to be the very Clement, whose name St. Paul says, Philippians 4, 3, is in the Book of Life, and as he wrote two or three years after the martyrdom of Peter and Paul, in twenty years before the death of St. John, there is scarcely any room for doubt that the doctrine of the sacrifice of the Eucharist has come to us from the Apostles, and should therefore be held as the true doctrine, even though we were unable to quote a word in its favor from the prophets and apostles. He further describes the Protestant doctrine as the error of Luther and Calvin, and hopes that the leaders of Protestantism, seeing the error of their teaching, will restore to public usage the old liturgy of the Christian sacrifice. See Franz Lynn on the Eucharist, page 320. The celebrated Leibniz, also, distinguished no less as a theologian than as a philosopher and a mathematician, a Protestant, though laboring for many years for the reconciliation of his co-religionists with the Catholic Church, makes an earnest plea for the acceptance of the Catholic doctrine as resting on the authority of the Fathers. Nothing appears to be clearer, he says, than in Melchizedek, when according to the prophetic allegory, of the scripture he is said to have offered bread and wine, the Eucharistic sacrifice, is prefigured. Much more to the same purpose will be found in his system of theology in the section on the Eucharistic sacrifice. We scarcely need inform the reader of that far-reaching movement in England and America which has sent back thousands of the works of the early fathers to find therein the genuine Catholic doctrine of the Eucharist. The Oxford movement, which began in the first half of the 19th century and virtually continues today, what was it but the recovering of long-lost Catholic truths by the aid of those beacon lights of the early Church? Among the doctrines thus recovered, the Catholic teaching on the sacrifice of the altar is not by any means the least prominent. It is needless to select passage for quotation from the rich stories of the patristic doctrine on the subject. For Catholic readers it is unnecessary. For non-Catholic readers, we hope it will be sufficient to say that if we filled a book as large as the one they are reading, or even larger with quotations from the Fathers, every quotation might be acknowledged as genuine by Protestant experts, although a means would be found of escaping the conclusion based upon it. Although in the description of the Eucharistic sacrifice every variety of expression is used, as though writers wish to warm their readers against the caviling methods of modern controversy, Although they explicitly assert that the very body and blood of Christ are offered in sacrifice for the remission of sins, that the sacrifice of the altar cannot be offered by any but priests, thus distinguishing it from religious rites, which are less properly called sacrifices, 
although they employ words in their description of the Christian rite which usage confines to the designating of a sacrifice in the strictest sense, nevertheless our Protestant friends are never at a loss for an interpretation favoring the deluded form of belief introduced by the innovators of the 16th century. Once the Reformers had cast aside the authority of a teaching church, which is the perpetual witness for the true meaning of Christian forms and ceremonies, they did not hesitate to interpret the Fathers as they had never been interpreted before. This state of things suggests in the following questions, what kind of language in the Fathers would bring conviction to our Anglican and Evangelical friends, as is the Fathers have exhausted the language of plain, direct, and even realistic description. If the Fathers held the same doctrine as modern Protestants, why did they use a language so utterly different from the language of Protestant theology and devotion? How did they avoid lapsing into forms of speech which would be recognized today as Anglican or Evangelical? Here and there, as is quite natural in so large a mass of writings, there are passages which are more or less obscure, or which to the untrained reader may seem to favor Protestant views, but there is scarcely an instance in point in which the passage cannot be matched by a clear and explicit statement of Roman Catholic doctrine from some other part of the author's writings, and in point of number the dubiously worded passages are perfectly insignificant compared with the numerous clear and explicit declarations of Roman Catholic doctrine. Why does the Eucharistic language of Protestants differ from the traditional language which began with the Apostles, was used by the Fathers, and was handed on unchanged to the present hour? What average Anglican or Presbyterian of the present day, if he had to compose a document on the Eucharist, would word it after the model of the famous debacle, or teaching of the Twelve Apostles, which was almost contemporaneous with the Apostles? In the fourteenth chapter of the debacle, we find the following precept. On the Lord's day you shall assemble and break bread, and give thanks after confessing your sins, in order that your sacrifice may be pure. Let no one who is at enmity with his friend join you in your assembly, till the two be reconciled, lest your sacrifice be profaned. For this is the sacrifice spoken of by the Lord. In every place and time offer to me a pure sacrifice. For a great king am I, says the Lord, and wonderful is my name among the Gentiles. Here the Eucharistic breaking of bread is repeatedly called a sacrifice, and a sacrifice of the strictest type, and in the prophecy of Malachi is appealed to, just as it is in an earlier part of the article. For this is the sacrifice spoken of by the Lord, etc. This is the sacrifice which was to be offered in every place, and always and among the Gentiles. Language like that of the Dibake, is intelligible to Catholics because it is the language of present Catholic usage, and no matter how far back we trace its history, we find it always the same. Has this traditional language changed its meaning in the course of ages? If not, then the doctrine of the early church is the doctrine of Rome. If it has changed its meaning, when did the change take place? If I observe that the church of God has spoken always in the same way of its one great act of worship, but am reminded by some Protestant friend that the church, while it's using the same language, has in the course of time changed its meaning, I naturally ask when, how, and under what circumstance. If I am told that the change was too gradual to enable us to fix the date, if I feel that I am being trifled with, if in the case of our literatures, ancient and modern, we can trace with considerable accuracy the history of words back through a variety of meanings to the primitive meaning of 
and determine approximately the time at which any given word began to acquire a new signification. Why cannot the same be done in the study of Eucharistic language? The answer is obvious. There are no signs of a gradual evolution of meanings. We find the writers of the first centuries at pains to explain themselves in a Roman Catholic sense, no less than the writers of the Roman Catholic Church of today. The truth is that the first change, whether in language or in doctrine, was introduced by the Reformers. Taking their stand on the Bible and cutting themselves adrift from the ever-living witness of the truth which Christ intended his church to be, they soon found themselves beyond hailing distance from the thought and the language of the rest of Christendom. If all the Reformers had had the consistency of Luther, the state of the controversy would have been simplified. Confronted with the testimony of the fathers of the early church, Luther took the bull by the horns and declared in his treatise on the abolition of the Mass that he cared not what the fathers said, but what they ought to have said. And in his treatise on private Masses, he said of the testimony of the fathers, the words and deeds of men we reek not of in matters of such moment. For we know that the very prophets fell, yes, and the apostles. By the word of Christ we judge the church, the apostles, and even the angels themselves. He can give us no assurance, however, that the word of Christ had not become the word of Luther before it reached his audience. End of section 56 Recording by Emerson Wells at formulafreak.com